All of the investigators said that there was no warmth or kindness in Paul's eyes and no emotion at all. It's giving serial killer. Hey everyone, welcome to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I'm super, super excited that you guys are listening to my brand new podcast where I'll discuss a ton of juicy cases, both solved and unsolved. But first, you guys probably recognize me from TikTok. I love making short form videos and I'm still going to be posting there, but having a podcast just lets me dive deeper into different cases and bring you guys literally all the info that's out there. So I thought we'd start by unpacking a huge case. This week, I'll be talking about the case of Angela Holmes and Michelle Mace, who were both brutally murdered. What makes this case so crazy is that they were first abducted from their jobs at Baskin Robbins, meaning that they were taken from a very public place. And based on that, you can tell that that is a sign of a very bold or unhinged criminal, at least in my opinion. So let's dive in and figure out what happened to Angela and Michelle. In 1997, both girls lived in the small town of Clarksville, Tennessee and worked at a Baskin Robbins. For anyone who's not familiar with the area, Clarksville is just over an hour drive outside of Nashville. Angela Holmes was 21 years old. She was a wife and a new mother to a baby. Angela was going to nursing school to become a surgical nurse, but was also working as a manager at Baskin Robbins to make some extra money before she graduated. Her friends and family say she was a natural overachiever and extremely smart. They also said that she was very well liked by everyone that knew her. Michelle Mace was 16 years old. Her friends and family said that she had a bubbly personality and liked to talk a lot. Michelle was still in high school and was working at Baskin Robbins as a part-time job. She wanted to be a writer and she also loved photography. Both girls really seemed to have a bright future ahead of them and it's just such a tragedy that their lives were intentionally taken by someone. And it's so upsetting that Angela's baby would lose their mother before they were even old enough to have any memories of her. So on the night of April 23rd, 1997, Michelle and Angela were working at Baskin Robbins and it was getting close to closing time, which was around 10 p.m. Since there were no customers in the store, Michelle called her mom to ask her for a ride home. Michelle also told her mom that she really wanted potato soup for dinner. Her mother joked that she wouldn't make all that since it was late and it took some effort to cook, but Michelle said that she really wanted it, so her mom agreed. Her mom said she would send Michelle's older brother to pick her up, and Michelle said that a customer had just walked in, so she had to hang up. She told her mom, bye, love you, and her mom said, I love you back. That would be the last conversation they ever had. Michelle's older brother arrived 10 minutes later to the Baskin Robbins to pick up his sister. He waited for several minutes, not thinking anything was out of the ordinary since the lights were still on inside. He realized that he hadn't actually seen anyone inside the store, not his sister, not her manager, Angela, and not any customers. He called his mom and said, something is off. Also, I'm not sure if he had a cell phone or if his car had a phone in it since it was the 90s, but cell phones were out by then, so maybe he did have one. Michelle's brother then walked up to the door and found that it was still unlocked, but somehow he knew for sure no one was inside. He called the police and when they arrived, they discovered the cash drawers in the register were completely empty. 
Even though Michelle and Angela were nowhere to be found, I guess the police didn't think that this was for sure an abduction because a search didn't go out until the next morning. And it's really sad that the search didn't start that night because the next day, Angela and Michelle's bodies were found at Dunbar Cave Park, which was just a few miles away from the Baskin Robbins. What happened to both girls was just awful. Both of their throats had been slit. Angela was found in the water with a total of 14 stab wounds. Michelle was found in the nearby woods and she had almost been decapitated by the attack. This is just so disturbing. It's really hard to understand how a person is even capable of this type of violence. In the days after the murders, a witness who was leaving the Baskin Robbins that night said that they saw a red car arriving at closing time. Another witness said that they saw a red car at Dunbar Cave Park that same night. All police had to go off was this red car lead, so roadblocks were set up to try and find it, but the car wasn't found. Six weeks later, there would be a break in the case, but it came in an unexpected way. On June 1st, a man named Mitch Roberts called the police to report an attempted abduction that was made by his ex-employee, who had come to his house that night wanting his job back. Mitch was a manager at a Shoney's restaurant and had fired a man named Paul Dennis Reed Jr., who was a dishwasher at the Shoney's. He had been fired because he threw a dish at a female server and it actually hit and hurt her. So he was definitely fired for a legitimate reason. Paul had knocked on Mitch's door in the late hours of the night and after answering, Mitch told Paul to come back tomorrow saying that they could talk then. Paul said someone was stealing from Shoney's and Mitch wanted to know what this was about and if it was really true. So Paul said, come to my truck and I'll show you the proof. Mitch followed him out back to his vehicle and noticed pre-packaged steaks from the restaurant in his truck. I'm sure Mitch thought that he was going to find money and that was a proof, but instead he just found a bunch of steaks. Mitch told Paul that we'll deal with this tomorrow, but that's when Paul pulled a gun on him and told him to put on handcuffs. Mitch refused and ran back to his house, but Paul followed after him, pulling out a knife. Worried that Paul may try to hurt or kill his family, Mitch acted fast and shoved Paul to the ground, running back inside and locking the door. Mitch stayed by the door and Paul ended up hearing Mitch calling to his wife to grab his gun and then decided to run away. This worked in Mitch's favor because he actually didn't have a gun. I'm sure he just said that to scare Paul. Mitch called the police and while they were at his house, Paul actually called Mitch and asked if he could come back and talk. Police silently told Mitch to agree to this plan and when Paul returned, the police swarmed and arrested him. Paul was charged with attempted kidnapping and while he was at the station, they checked into his background, quickly realizing he must be the person involved in the Angela and Michelle case. Not only that, but he was also wanted in two more robbery murder cases where he had murdered five other people. That's right, Paul was a wanted serial killer actually known as the fast food killer. The first clue police got linking Paul to the other cases was the day after he was fired from Shoney's. Two employees were murdered at a Captain D's in Nashville, Tennessee. So let's talk about that. 
Sarah Jackson was 16 years old and working at Captain D's was her first part-time job. She had been working there for eight months while she was in high school and she was also on her school's volleyball and softball team. So we can tell that Sarah was a hard worker with a busy schedule. From the money that she got working at Captain D's, she actually had been able to buy her first car. Her manager, Steve Hampton, was 28 years old and he was said to be a great boss. And on top of that, he was also a husband and a father to three kids. So on the morning of February 16, 1997, Sarah drove her new car to Captain D's to start her shift at 8.40 a.m. Steve was already there and the two of them would have started setting up for the morning shift. When the next employee came to start her shift, the doors were still locked, which they shouldn't have been at this point. She knocked and no one answered. Inside, the chairs were still up from closing, which was weird because a restaurant was supposed to be opening soon. So at this point, the chairs should have been set up and everything should have been ready for the morning shift. She called the police and the other lead manager to come to the scene. When everyone got there, they all looked inside. No one was there, but then they got to the walk-in freezer. Sarah and Steve's bodies were face down on the ground dead. They had been shot several times execution style. The cash and safe were open and $7,500 had been stolen. Steve's wallet was also missing. Later, Steve's wife said that he had $600 on him to pay their rent that day. Since the door had been locked on the way out, police believed the killer was experienced at least in robberies, or in Paul's case, experienced in how fast food restaurants operate. Employees told police that the night before, someone came in at closing asking for an application to be a chef and then left. Since he was the last person in the restaurant, police had a sketch artist do a drawing of him and put out a description. A witness came forward and said that that morning, she saw someone outside Captain D's with a paper and saw Steve take it from him, but she didn't see anything after that. I think we can assume that this witness was just driving by. Another witness said that at 9.20 in the morning, they saw a man matching the description leaving the Captain D's. So it seemed like Paul, or the killer, used the application to get into the restaurant before it opened, meaning he thought out and planned the whole thing. It's just crazy to me how unafraid Paul was of getting caught. I mean, this all happened in broad daylight. Soon after the murders, 11 miles away from Captain D's, a man said he found Steve's cards and ID on the ground near a highway road. No wallet, just the cards and the ID. Police thought this might be a break in the case because a partial fingerprint was found on the card. They ran it through the state database, but for some reason, they couldn't do a national scan. Not sure what happened with that, but the person with the fingerprint didn't have a record, at least not in Tennessee. A witness also said they saw someone in the area during that time walking around with a Shoney's apron on. Police talked to employees and managers, but they didn't get any leads. So they saw someone with a Shoney's apron, Paul worked at Shoney's, I mean the clues were there. But after those witness statements, the case went cold. Then, one month later, on March 23, 1997, just two miles away from the Captain D's, police got a 911 call from a McDonald's. All that was heard was someone on the line saying, please, in almost a whisper tone, several times. Police went to check things out and when they arrived, the lights were off but they could see movement so they broke in through a window. There was blood everywhere and four employees' bodies were on the ground. They were 17-year-old Andrea Brown, 
27-year-old Ronald Santiago, who was the manager, 23-year-old Robert A. Sewell, and 30-year-old Jose Antonio Ramirez Gonzalez. Everyone but Jose had been shot execution style. He had been stabbed 17 times, but police realized he was still alive, but just hardly hanging on. Jose was immediately rushed to the hospital. Meanwhile, police found that $3,000 had been stolen from the cash register, so already there's an obvious similarity between the two cases. And by some miracle, Jose also ended up surviving the attack. It took him two weeks after the attack to finally wake up, and he was still very weak and could only move his eyes and fingers. From that, police were able to find out how many attackers there were and that one attacker was white. When Jose had recovered more, he was able to tell police the full events of what actually happened. He said the four employees were closing and they started to leave when a man with a gun forced them back inside. The attacker had Ronald open up the safe and then lined them up and shot them one by one. Basically, their final moments were full of terror and the anticipation of what the killer was going to do next. Doing something like that, it's just... I don't know, it's just like pure evil. So Jose is last in the lineup and the killer goes to shoot him, but the gun jammed. That's when the killer started stabbing him and Jose said he actually stopped moving and played dead so that the killer would stop stabbing him. And it worked. The killer left and Jose put all the energy he had left into making that 911 call. And that's really what saved his life. Jose also worked with a sketch artist, and there were a lot of similarities between this new sketch and the other sketch from Captain D's. Police treated the whole situation like it was the same offender and started patrolling fast food restaurants more, hoping to catch this guy in another act since they had no way to find this killer. Obviously, that didn't help too much because a month after the McDonald's murders is when the Baskin Robbins murders happened. And to remind everyone, the Baskin Robbins was only an hour drive away from Nashville, so maybe the killer had actually noticed the police patrolling, and that's why he went outside of Nashville. Now that we've covered the other murders, let's go back to Paul's arrest and why the police think that he was the one who committed all these murders. Well, first, there's an obvious connection between him working at Shoney's and a witness seeing someone in a Shoney's apron around Captain D's. While Paul's in custody, police look into his criminal history. In 1983, when Paul was 26 years old, he robbed a Houston steakhouse. He didn't kill anyone, but he didn't wear a mask, so he was caught and sentenced to 20 years pretty quickly. But he only ended up serving 7 years. When Paul got out in 1990, he moved to Nashville. With that info alone, Paul is already looking like suspect number 1. And if you're thinking right now that Paul must be innocent because he had a record and his fingerprint didn't show up in Steve's card, just remember that they only did a Tennessee state search and Paul's record was in Houston, which is in the state of Texas. In this interrogation, Paul was overly friendly and said if he was a killer, he didn't want the investigators to look at him any differently because he was still a good person and a human, and he didn't want to tarnish a possible relationship with the police which seems like a big red flag to me. The investigator said, you're saying if you're the killer. So are you? Paul said, no, I'm just saying if I was. Another thing to note, all of the investigators said that there was no warmth or kindness in Paul's eyes and no emotion at all. It's giving serial killer. Sorry, I just had to say it. 
Police needed more to connect Paul to the murders, so they did a full investigation into Paul's personal records. They discovered Paul bought gas in the same area as the Baskin Robbins on the night of the murders, putting him in the general area at the time. He also lived an hour away, so he had no legitimate reason to be getting gas from that specific station. They also searched Paul's car and they found forensics from the victims, Angela and Michelle, and blood from victims was found on his shoes. His fingerprints were tested to the fingerprints found on Steve's card and it was a match. It's a little bit frustrating how the system works because if police had done a search outside of the state, Paul could have been caught way faster. Jose, the McDonald's survivor, was shown Paul in a lineup and he was able to accurately ID him. Police also searched Paul's house and they found jars full of coins stolen from the restaurants. It was also discovered that with the money Paul got from the McDonald's robbery, he went to a dealership and bought himself a car. The dealership said that he had first come in and didn't have enough money to buy it, but then he came back later with the money. Apparently, the reason why he took Michelle and Angela is because Michelle warned him her brother was coming and he had a moment of panic and decided to abduct them. And this part is really upsetting, but the reason Angela and Michelle's bodies weren't found in the same spot was because Angela was killed first and Michelle made a run for it before Paul caught up to her in the woods. Okay, let's get into the background of Paul just so we can talk about all the early warning signs because these things never really happen out of the blue. Paul's dad was a private detective, but also an alcoholic. When his parents divorced when he was three years old, he started living with his dad, but it was really his grandma who raised him since his dad worked a lot. Paul started stealing from neighbors at a very young age, and he did pranks on his grandma that weren't at all funny and were really just more signs that something wasn't right with him. He put literal thumbtacks in his grandma's soup so that she would accidentally eat them. Yeah, that's not funny. And that was just the start. He would also lock her in her bedroom and wouldn't let her out, basically trapping her for periods of time. He also set her bed on fire while she was sleeping. I would actually call that abuse, definitely not pranks. Paul also hurt animals, which is an early sign of a serial killer. Another early sign Paul had was a lot of head trauma that happened at a young age. At five, he was hit in the head with a brick. At 12, he fractured his skull in a bike accident after he was hit by a car and went into the windshield. And at 23, he got another concussion from a car accident he was in. Criminal experts have said that damage to the frontal lobe can sometimes make serial killers because it can affect the person's decision-making abilities. More signs Paul was becoming a more serious criminal started when he was a teenager. At 16, he was kicked out of his parents' home for sexually assaulting his sister. And at 19, he was charged with robbing a supermarket. Those charges were actually dropped though because a prosecutor said Paul was legally insane. So yeah, he just completely got off with it, which doesn't make any sense to me, but maybe it has something to do with the time period. Either way, Paul was clearly a very violent person and action should have been taken against him so that he wasn't able to hurt more people. So let's talk about the trials. Paul had three different trials for the seven murders, one for each separate restaurant. The juries had to be brought in from Memphis because of local publicity around the cases. Basically, they didn't think the community could be unbiased. Jose, the surviving victim, was able to testify against Paul at his trial. 
Paul's attorney said that Paul had a broken brain, so he shouldn't get the death penalty. But prosecutors argued that he should because of the level of cruelty in his murders. Paul's defense team was really only working to not get him the death penalty since there was so much evidence proving that it was him. In the trials, Paul acted like he was extremely paranoid. He said his defense team were all actors pretending to work for him, and he said the U.S. government recruited him for a mind control program, and now they're watching his every move as part of some sort of study. Paul's family said that he was mentally incompetent to stand his trial, and his sister said on the stand that he was acting very strange before the murder started happening. She said he had gone to his father's funeral in casual clothes and wearing a Burger King crown, calling himself King Paul. He also sometimes wore a cloth over his head to keep the demons out. But when he was examined psychologically, he was actually found to be playing the system and he was smarter than he was letting on. Because of all of his head trauma, Paul had been evaluated throughout the years and some doctors had diagnosed him with things, while others said he was totally mentally competent. His head trauma might have affected his impulse and decision-making skills, but Paul was sane. Paul was found guilty of all seven murders and sentenced to seven death sentences. That's the most ever giving to someone in the state of Tennessee. In Angela and Michelle's case, the jury only deliberated for a total of four hours before deciding Paul should get the death penalty. While Paul was in jail, he tried to appeal some murders, but not the others. He was apparently back and forth on if he deserved the death sentence. He, of course, didn't win any of his appeals. Even though Paul was supposed to be executed years earlier, he ended up dying in 2013 from pneumonia and heart issues. There were also some theories about Paul being responsible for additional crimes. There's a 1980 case that happened at a bowling alley in Houston, where Paul is from, where a man walked up at closing time and said that he needed water for his car before shooting and killing three employees and robbing the place. A man named Max Sofar was actually convicted and sentenced to death for this crime, but a witness came forward much later on saying that Paul was there that night at the bowling alley and was kicked out and then threatened to come back and kill everyone. I don't know how this didn't come up until years later, but if Paul really was there and didn't commit the crime, then it would be an insanely huge coincidence. Okay guys, that is absolutely everything that I have on this case, but don't worry, I have a new case coming next week. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and watching the first episode of What Happened. Don't forget to follow, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Pastor Bedtime on YouTube for full video episodes. You can find me on Instagram at Flores and TikTok at TrueCrimeJackie. Thank you guys again so much for being here and we'll see you next week. Bye guys!